Welcome to Interventions. My name is Daniel Alemann. And my name is Charlotte Johan. And today we're talking to Dr. Annabel Brett. Annabel Brett is a reader in the history of political thought at the University of Cambridge and a fellow of Conville and Keyes College. She's a specialist on the history of political thought from the late Middle Ages to the mid-17th century. She has widely published on scholastic, moral and political philosophy, as well as on the early modern Protestant natural law traditions. Annabel Brett's research has engaged in a wide variety of issues that range from human freedom to the theory of the soul, and from early modern conceptions of international law to the interface between human politics and the natural environment. We are delighted that she's here with us today. Thanks very much, Annabel. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, and I'm delighted to be here too. So let's start with a question about your own intellectual biography. You are a historian of political thought, but your first degree was in classics. At what point did you decide to switch fields and focus on a later period? And to what extent would you say that your research interests have continued to be informed by your background in classics? Well, I suppose, formally speaking, the switch came between my BA and my PhD, But it was probably starting a little bit earlier because in my final year of my classics degree, I borrowed, as was possible, the history of political thought paper, the early history of political thought paper from the history tripos. And although I would have told you that I was devoted to classical philosophy, effectively I found that I was more interested in the reception of this classical philosophy in a later period, and in particular what happened to the language through the process of translation and under the pressure of different, very different political realities. So that process of mutation, readaptation in different contexts really fascinated me. And I think I decided at some point in my final year, probably, that this was the way that I was going to go. In terms of how much that background has continued to influence me, I think I would say in two ways. One is that I remain very interested in philosophy. I'm frustrated in the way that philosophers are by the rigid idea of philosophy that some historians seem to have as a kind of contrast with history. There are many different philosophies which intersect with history in many different ways. And we have a choice about that, just as we have a choice of what history to write, um, which always in the end, or at least partly, comes down to our political choices and commitments. So I'd say what that, on the one hand. I also would say that I owe to my classics degree an abiding obsession with language. I read a lot of French structuralist anthropology, and that gave me an interest in structuralist poetics and semiology. And then naturally I got interested in post-structuralism and post-structuralist poetics. Not many people were interested in that at history in the time, as I found when I came into the history faculty, but it was dominating literary criticism. And I, you know, if pushed, I think I would say that most of my work has been about language in one way or another and the constitutive role of language in our world. I mean, I used to be a real hardliner and think that language was all there was. I wouldn't be quite so hardline after my years in history, but I still think it's vitally important in the way that we live and the way that we create the worlds that we live in. We also wanted to ask you a question about method. It is a common place to speak of the so-called Cambridge School of Intellectual History, and it is usually claimed that what unites this school is a shared methodology. 
but the supposed members of that school often push back against this label. Now you have yourself written a piece with the title What is Intellectual History? How important do you think it is to think about methodology when we want to answer that question? Well, I don't really like the word methodology. I think that it over-concretizes what should be just a series of critical reflections on our own practice, the kinds of questions that we ask, what justifies them, and the kinds of things that we think count as an answer and why we think those are answers. So that's all I would understand by methodology. And yes, I do think it's important for well, anyone in any field, really, to ask that question from time to time. The reason that I don't like methodology or even method is it suggests some kind of, I don't know, recipe or prescription, uh, something that you have to follow, whereas that defies or denies the creative process that's involved in all intellectual enterprises and particularly in the act of writing. When we write, that is not totally autonomous process, but to a large degree it is, and we find our subject through our writing. This is something that's familiar to everybody writing, including people writing their PhDs, that one's thoughts change. And one's writing has an artistic integrity on its own terms, and it will stand or fall as that piece of writing, not by the methodology that it uses. So the methodology informs the way you proceed, but it it can't dictate it, and one shouldn't fixate on methodology as your saviour or otherwise, because it won't save you in the final analysis. In your first book, which grew out of your doctoral dissertation, you trace the development of late medieval and early modern theories of individual rights. This is a challenging and wide-ranging study which begins in the 13th century and ends in the 17th. And due to its scope, Liberty, Right and Nature, as the book is called, also engages with a number of established histories of political thought. Why did you pick this particular topic and how would you describe the main interventions of the book? So I picked it for a mix of reasons, just like any doctoral dissertation. What your supervisor suggests, what the existing literature is, what's possible within the framework. I think that... As I said before, I'd become interested in the reception of classical thought in the medieval period with the 13th century scholastics. And I wanted to see what happened after that in a way. So I, in a way, moving towards the later scholastics was a natural move on from the work that I'd done as an undergraduate on medieval thinkers. It was also the case that not a lot had been done on it. I mean, really, the state of scholarship at the time, particularly in English, was, I mean, it was like walking in a desert. And that gave a lot of possibilities for, for doing creative work. But it also meant that there weren't that many anchors to sort of latch onto. I'm mixing metaphors, but you know what I mean? There weren't very many paths already tracked through the field that one can or orientate oneself by. Um, my supervisor, Quentin Skinner, had written a couple of central chapters in the second volume of Foundations, but there wasn't a lot else. But one thing there was, was Richard Tuck's study, Natural Rights Theories, which 
to, you know, a beginning PhD student seemed to be the, by far the most exciting thing that was being done with this field. And my book is very influenced by, by his book, as I'm sure is obvious to everyone who reads it. At the same time, though, I, I think it's doing two different things. One is that it's interested not merely in the rights themselves, but in the subject of those rights and how that subject is constituted. The original PhD was called Subjective Right and Human Agency. And what it's really interested in is how different conceptions of the human agent translate out into different rights claims in the world and towards other human agents. So that focus on human agency, on the construction of the human, the nature of the human, that's one thing that I think is distinctive about it. Secondly, part of the aim of the book was to resist a conception of later scholastic thought as somehow intellectually conservative, a sort of backwater overtaken by the modernity of the 17th century. Hobbes, Locke, Grotius. When we make those sorts of judgments and characterizations, we're presupposing a very great deal. And what I wanted to do is get back behind those presuppositions and reconstruct these different ways of talking, languages of rights in their own terms, including all the baggage that they carry with them, their intellectual commitments, and bring those to the attention of the reader without saying, oh, well, this one was this or this one was that, but to encourage people to think again about what's involved in their own commitments and in the story of natural rights that they choose to tell, what that leaves out, what decisions it preempts. And in that sense, I think it was a very Skinnerian exercise. So Liberty Before Liberalism, for example, came out roughly at the same time as my book. And, you know, that recovers a different way of talking. It doesn't tell you that you have to talk that way, but it offers you a choice and it makes you reflect on which way of talking you're going to adopt and what are the consequences of that. So I think it was that, that was really what I was up to in that book. So let's delve a little bit further into something that you've already mentioned a couple of times. As is perhaps less well known, among your publications are also two translations of major Latin texts from the 14th century. One is William of Ockham's On the Power of Emperors and Popes, and the other Marsilius of Padua's Defender of the Peace. How important do you think is this process of translation in order to understand texts, political or otherwise, of the past? So, as the course of this conversation has already suggested, I've always been interested in translation. But I've come to think that it's absolutely key to our enterprise as intellectual historians. So translation is interpretation. It is not just a mechanical process. And early modern, well, medieval and early modern theorists of translation were very much aware of that. So the Latin word for a translator is interprese, interpreter, someone who transmits between one language and another, but also between one world and another. So Leonardo Bruni, for example, thought that his activity as a translator and his activity as a historian were the same exercise. And I've come to see that that's right. So translation is interpretation. I think you can turn that back the other way around and think of interpretation as translation. So we are all engaged in translation, whether we think of it in those terms or not. But I suppose doing the whole works, and especially translating Marsilius of Padua, brought home to me in a way that I 
I hadn't realised from just translating little bits of text, which we all do in the course of writing our PhD or any other book, the creative aspect of translating. You are creating a world of the text. It has to be internally coherent, but it also has to be something that a contemporary reader can enter, even if at first she finds it strange. But the aim of the translator, I think, is that by the end of that, she may not have stopped feeling that it was strange, but she knows her way around in a certain way. And so I think that this has, in fact, altered my perception of myself as a historian. I'm acutely aware of this, let's say, creative or even poetic, but in the sense of poetic, aspect of writing, uh, that you are, as an intellectual historian, partly what I'm doing is recovering the internal coherence of a particular world and a particular way of talking. So just a follow-up question here, and it concerns the relationship between the work of a historian as, as somebody who reconstructs the past and the work of a historian who translates because if translation is in fact a creative process then how does it affect our authority over you know the claims that we make about the past mm. so i think that's a really good question i think the question is but this is actually true of all history writing it's just a question that gets suppressed it's how to hold the two intention at the same time so as intellectual historians we adopt a voice that is essentially a reporting voice. And we back up that reporting voice by footnotes and sources. But we're also doing something more than that. We are telling a story. And this goes back to, I don't know, Hayden White, uh, postmodernist historiography has always insisted on this literary aspect. It's not something that's totally new to me. It's just that I'm aware of it through this process of translation. With a translation, you can't be footnoting your translation choices the whole time. I can defend them, but they don't have that sort of scaffolding that an intellectual historical voice would have. And it really brings home to you the degree to which you are an agent in this process of transmission. And as with all translation, there is an ethics associated with that because you cannot simply replicate. But there are questions of good faith that should govern your, your process of translation. So it's not a kind of uh, free-for-all creativity. It's governed by a certain ethic and by the fact that your translation is itself informed by your work as an intellectual historian, which does have that scaffolding that all good intellectual history should have. So it's a kind of fused enterprise. And I guess in my last full monograph, I was trying to find a way of writing that would capture in a way that borderline between the intellectual historical reporting side of what we do and the poetic, in a broad sense, translating aspect of what we do. Let us now turn to your latest monograph, Changes of State. In this book, you argue that in the natural law discourse of the 16th and 17th centuries, the city or civitas cannot be understood without thinking about human agency and about the tension between the inside versus the outside of the political community. Can you elaborate a bit on this? 
So the prompt, the initial prompt for that book was a paper that I'd written on Domingo de Soto's Deliberation in the Cause of the Poor, which is a brilliant argument in favor of beggars. It is a defense of the right to beg and begging in public spaces against people who wanted to clear them out of the streets and put them in hospitals for the poor. So that book is about liminality. It's about the gates of the city. It's about the doors of houses. So it's about physical or spatial liminality. But it's also about metaphysical liminality, the extent to which beggars are or are not full members of the body politic. And the body politic is not a physical space. It is a metaphysical body. It could be a juridical body like a corporation or it could be conceived and they use the language of mystical body, the same language that they use of the church. But it is a body of people bound together by a particular bond which isn't simply spatial location. And so that really gave me the theme for my lectures. It's about the interrelationship between physical liminality and metaphysical liminality. And the interesting thing about early modern discourse is that the physical and the metaphysical are not two different worlds. But metaphysical liminality begins with the human agent themselves. What are we going to count as human? And so the book started with animals. What is the difference between an animal and a human being such that a human being can enter into political community, this body, and an animal can't, even though they can occupy the same physical space and be in other sorts of relations. So I suppose from there, the, the project of the book was to sort of track the construction of what we might call the state, but I call the city, the Kivitas, through different kinds of exclusion and inclusion up to the moment where we create the body politic. And that's this almost founding myth that we find in all these texts. You can call it political theory if you like, but it's a kind of fable inherited ultimately from antiquity about how we were all wandering around in the fields and we got together and we made something that didn't exist before, something that wasn't given in nature. But then the question is, well, how did that then relate to our nature and to our natural bodies and to physical space? the space in which we live our concrete, physical, natural lives. And so I suppose the second, if the first half of the book was a kind of constructive moment, the second half was a deconstructive moment, and it was reading physical space and natural lives against the body politic and political lives. I'd read um, a little while before that, rather late in the day, Agamben's Homo Sacer with its preoccupation with bare life and the relationship of bare life to the state. And he has this sort of Schmittian thesis about how bare life is accepted in the state. But I thought that the early modern casuistry of conscience generates a much more sophisticated interface between our natural lives, which are not bare lives, and the lives we live as citizens of the state. So that's really what the book is about. So we'd also like to press you a little bit more on another question which has surfaced, again surfaced, uh, before. In the introduction of the book Changes of State, you write that this early modern debate about the limits of the city is still fruitful for our political thinking today. And I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a little more on what we really can learn from these, to some extent, late medieval, but mostly early modern political thinkers. So following on from what I've said, I think that the early modern period is 
particularly fruitful for political thinking because it's a time when the boundaries of the political are not fixed. And I mean those boundaries in different senses, metaphysical, physical, also the limits of the term political. Precisely, there is a kind of meta debate about what is political in the first place. And the whole language of the political is shifting. So, for example, they mostly decide that animals aren't political, but they always ask that question. Why is an animal not a human agent? What is it about an animal agency that disqualifies it from X, Y, or Z? They don't take it for granted. And I really like that. It has to be fought for, and it was fought for on the ground. We know how bloody the period is, and it's fought for intellectually. It gives that intensity. It's also a time when Europe is expanding outwards, and then we have this question about the rest of the... Is that political? Is it not political? And it's collapsing into civil war. So where does the political stop and we, we return to a state of nature? That's the Hobbesian way of putting it. So it's a time of huge creative energy. And I feel now that we are, again, at a point where the boundaries of the political are being challenged. They have to be. The matter is urgent. We stand on the brink of losing it all with certain scenarios of climate change. But that means that there's all to play for and we, we can be creative. So I think that that's the fundamental way in which it's fruitful, that we don't simply repeat inherited understandings of what politics and what's not. We're fluid and open, prepared to stretch our languages of the political, to stretch our world and to create a new kind of political reality to live in. So, for example, that's why I'm interested in theories of animal citizenship, for example, you wouldn't normally think of an ant. And from a certain way of looking, that's just, that's just ridiculous. But I don't think it is at all. By thinking through animals, we think, and this is one of my repeated things, we think through the human, and we think about the relationship between the human and the political. And it's that kind of question that I think really needs answering now, and that I think more and more people are actually interested in. So this next question is methodological in essence, but it also concerns your period. You write about political thought, and yet your work is based on authors who were embedded in other disciplines, such as theology or law, because politics and political science did not exist as disciplines at the time, nor did history, incidentally. How do you think this affects the perspective of historians of political thought to study political ideas that were negotiated within but also between disciplines that had a different epistemic center? So I think this ties up with my answer to the previous question. I think this is another sense in which the boundaries of the political are not fixed. There is an embryonic political science, but it's still in the process of being formed and it's precisely, it's very contested. What is it to do political science? And there are other disciplines which have much more prestige, law and theology, fighting sometimes very overtly for the same terrain. So, for example, Vittoria, at the beginning of the re-election on the American Indians, says, this is not the province of lawyers, this is the province of a theologian. So it's the theologians who handle the whole world beyond the state, and that's quite a claim. So I suppose that that's essentially my answer. How does it affect our historians of political thought? Well, it forces us to ask, well, historians of what thought? And where will we find the political? I've been trying to think about this recently in a contemporary perspective by engaging with international lawyers and how they write the history of international law vis-a-vis -vis historians of political thought and how they write 
the history of political thought. And this has turned out to be a really complex subject to which no one actually has any very clear answers. The resulting volume is going to be called History, Politics, Law. But the purpose of it is to throw into question simultaneously the identity of all those three fields. It's turning out to be a lot more than we thought we were taking on. We thought it would be some kind of easier contrast, but it's not at all because all those terms are simultaneously in play. I think something that I also would say is that that epistemic fluidity of early modern intellectual inquiry, the absence of boundaries in those senses, is something that can help us when we think about global history of political thought because we are there encountering traditions that don't have these disciplinary boundaries or academic traditions in the way that the West has. So their discourse may not look like Western discourses or be scaffolded in the way, as we discussed, that the different disciplines now scaffold themselves. But I think that the openness of early modern political discourse gives us a clue to a kind of openness to that conversation between Western political thought and global political thought. Lastly, we also wanted to ask you if you could give us a glimpse at your current and future projects. What are you working on at the moment? So, Changes of State opened up a variety of themes, each of which was attractive to me in some way. More on animals, more on spatiality, more on natural life and what that meant. The missing chapter in Changes of State that never got written was a chapter on war, because there the intersection between space and the political seemed to be at its most acute. So originally I thought that I might write a book about war, and as a prelude to that I, I wrote an article about the space of politics and the space of war in Hugo Grotius's De Yuri Beliak Parkes, a kind of programmatic text, if you like, of the law of nations, and it was meant to be a kind of reading of that text for, for these things that I was interested in. But... In the course of doing that, I came to feel that the most interesting thing about it was not the space or the war per se, but the way of approaching it. Besides the strictly juridical aspect, and I mean the natural law and the natural rights and then the positive law of nations at the end, there was a domain that I called moral reasoning. It was a series of teleological principles that shaped the hard edges of the law, if you like, towards the more supple contours of the concrete political international world. And I suppose I thought that this was in fact the most interesting aspect. And so the new book that I plan is precisely about moral thinking in this sense. It's about that interface between the law and the concrete spatially lived world. So in that sense, it's carries on a theme of changes of state, but it's not constructive-deconstructive in the same mood. This book will be in a different mood where I try to recover the kind of reasoning which allows thinkers to negotiate between the two, that is to adapt law to concrete circumstances without collapsing, on the other hand, into a kind of reason of state or a pure imperialism, if you want that term. So... That's what the book is about. I'm just at the moment trying to sketch the contours of that. It will involve more on the scholastics, more on humanist Aristotelians, but it will be centered, I think, around the law of nations. And the ambition would be to do something I've never done before, which is to put a foot into the 18th century. 
and see what unknown country I find myself in then. We've reached the end of another episode. Thank you, Annabelle, for coming to talk to us. Well, thank you too in turn. It was a pleasure and it was also a pleasure to think about my answers to your very perceptive questions. If you like listening to interventions and you're keen to receive updates, please follow us on Twitter at the IH Podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps other people find us. We'll be back soon.